Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our Easter series today, The Resurrection, with a message entitled Confidence in the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is a phrase that's occasionally used in our culture. Sometimes we hear of someone having what we call an existential moment of crisis. So what's meant by that is that the person in question is at a crisis point in their life where they're questioning the foundations of all that they believe and even the meaning of life itself. In this moment of doubting, indeed in this moment of supreme despair, they evaluate all that they've ever believed or loved and question if it has any value at all. I'm not opposed to that experience. I say that because I'm keenly interested in evangelism, and I know that any adult conversion to Christ consists of just such a moment. But I also know that not a few people have an existential moment of crisis and never find their way out of it. They enter into a time of their life in which they discount everything, and the result can destroy relationships and marriages. Jobs and careers are destroyed. It can lead to madness and for some to suicide. You see, we were created for purpose, and life without purpose is the most soul-destroying thing any of us can encounter. It's far worse than any form of suffering that we can undergo. See, every once in a while, I'll meet a Christian who's having an existential crisis. How do I know my faith is not just fantasy, they ask. Sometimes when I encounter such an individual, it can be extremely frustrating. And why? Well, let me give you a scenario. I'll occasionally meet with someone who says, how do I know the Bible is true? And I ask them, have you read the entire Bible through? And how well have you mastered its message? And often the answer is, well, I don't know the Bible well. And then I ask, well, do you know how the Bible in its present form came to us? And again, the answer is, well, no, not really. And what do you know about ancient manuscripts or archaeological evidence or the way in which the Bible was developed over 1,600 years, its internal consistency, its historical veracity? And again, I met with a blank stare. I know, I know, I'm not the world's best counselor, but I do find this most frustrating. An existential crisis without any context in which meaning can be found and examined is simply the product of a lazy mind given to irrational fears. There's nothing noteworthy about that. See, this Easter season, we're studying 1 Corinthians 15. And the chapter is a response to the issue that some believers in the Corinthian church were struggling with. And I don't know if they were having existential crisis. Indeed, as we keep studying this passage, we're going to see that these believers were confused about what the Bible taught and began their understanding of truth, not from a God-centered worldview, but from the framework of Greek philosophical thought. But as I said, we're going to get to that later. According to the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter, some of them were saying there was no resurrection from the dead. And I've noticed a simple human fact. Whenever there is one person who says something with a loud voice and with an air of confidence, you'll find any number of others begin to have an existential crisis. What if they're right? What if there is no resurrection from the dead? I remember years ago teaching a class entitled Christianity and Contemporary Thought. I once received a letter from one of my students, and it was one of the most accusatory letters I'd ever received. He told me that I had caused him to doubt his faith. Now, I must say, 
I've been around a lot of so-called Christian professors who constantly cause their students to doubt the historic truths of the Christian faith, and I am not one of those. You know, for my part, I would articulate a number of non-Christian worldviews and philosophies. I would try to let these views have their full say in my class, and then, in as careful a manner as I was able, I would articulate a Christian response and then a defense of the historic Christian position. But my student was not satisfied with that. He said, the very fact that you brought these views up has caused me to doubt my faith. And I, I was stunned. Did my student think that he would make it through life without encountering numerous philosophies that would challenge his Christian faith? See, there are loud voices everywhere that claim all manner of things. Now, recently, CNN hosted a program espousing that the Jesus account was filled with myths. But as it turns out, whenever my student would hear any challenge to his faith, irrational doubt simply overwhelmed his very weak soul, and he was launched into an existential crisis. Like the sailors who followed Columbus into the New World, after they had been at sea for a number of months, they began to wonder, what if those who say the earth is flat are right? What if we sail to the edge of the thing and fall into an abyss? And so every day that went by only increased their fears. Rather than facing their fear with facts, they simply let fear overwhelm them. See, the only way to deal with such a crisis is to actually set our feet firmly on that which we already know to be true. Settle on that and build on that. And with that, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached to them and the gospel that they joyfully welcomed. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am not the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, when facing the truth or error of things, we should begin with a place of absolute certainty. In this passage, Paul recounts for the Corinthians what it is that they actually know. I'm going to point out three essential, provable facts that the Corinthians needed to settle before they dealt with the question of the resurrection of the dead. The first is the fact of the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The second is the fact of the eyewitnesses to the gospel. How do we verify that the gospel is true? And the third is the fact of the transformation that comes by believing the gospel. Paul sets out his personal experience of both salvation and then his calling to be an apostle as additional evidence that the gospel is in fact true. So let's take these matters one step at a time. The first piece of ground that Paul demands believers stand upon if they're going to examine the truth of the resurrection is the truth of the gospel itself. Now, if you don't know the gospel or have been completely unsure about what it is, listen up now. 
I can think of nothing that is more essential than knowing the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. Indeed, what he says, according to Paul, is of first importance, and here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And so at the heart of the gospel is that Christ died for the sins of all who would believe in him. His death on the cross was for our sins, or he died in our place. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And when Paul says he died for our sins, he means two things. First, he is our representative before God, or he represents us before God. As our representative, he comes before God, bearing our sins, bearing our brokenness, and bearing our rebellion before God. But he is also our substitute in that the death he dies, he dies in our place. That is, the Bible claims that the wages of sin is death, and he paid the penalty of death on our behalf. Therefore, he was punished for what I did. He was substituted for me. And if he was punished for me, the punishment for my sin has been satisfied, and I am therefore not punished for them again. And by the way, that part of the heart of the gospel must not be forgotten. Until you and I place our eternal confidence not in ourselves and what we have done, but in Christ and what he has done, there can be no salvation. You know, I say this often, but I'll say it here again. For every look that we have at ourselves and how we have fallen short, for every look at ourselves, take 10 looks at the cross and gain your confidence from what he has done. See, if you're still counting on your good works to get you into heaven, you have no hope. Your sins are a problem. They are the problem. You can't atone for your own sins. Sins always demand death. And death must be the payment for our sins. But Christ died for those who would trust in him. And therefore, his death paid for the sins of all who hope in him. So let me say it again. Even though Paul has not yet proved that the gospel is true, what he has done here is he has made sure that the Corinthians would understand this is the heart of the gospel. Back by popular demand, Back to the Bible Canada is announcing our second Israel Experience Tour scheduled for May 2018. There's plenty of time to plan for this trip to the promised land, a trip of a lifetime. Join the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and special musical guests, and so much more. The initial Israel experience was sold to capacity, so although it's a year away, it's time to register and avoid disappointment. Join us in Tiberias. Experience sailing and worshiping on the Sea of Galilee. Visit the Mount of Beatitudes, the village of Nazareth, the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the list goes on. And at each location, be inspired by the teaching of Dr. John. Check out all the details today at backtothebible.ca or call us for more information at 1 800 663 2425. We started our study by remembering the gospel. Paul enunciates three aspects of the gospel. The first is the truth that Christ died for our sins. The second is the truth that he was buried. I think Paul mentions this fact so that it should not be forgotten that his death was real and that it was final. 
It was not that Christ appeared to be dead or that he deceived people into thinking he was dead. The death was a real death. He was taken from his cross and he was placed into a tomb. And that's what makes the issue of the resurrection so important. When Paul speaks about the death and burial of Jesus, he uses the past tense, which refers to a singular punctiliar moment. And there's something here that that you can't catch in an English translation. The fact that Christ died and was buried is in what is called the Greek aorist tense, which is an action that happened at a distinct time in the past. But now here, when speaking of the resurrection, it's in the perfect tense, which is an action that has happened in the past, but that past action is still ongoing today. In other words, Paul is saying that the raised Jesus is still the raised Jesus. He is presently living by the power of an indestructible life. We should know that Christ not only died for our sins, but that he has defeated death, that death could not conquer him, and that he reigns as Lord of life and of death. And by the way, as a side note, that's why we display an empty cross. That is, we acknowledge what Christ has done in his sufferings on the cross, and we will always return to that, but we are reminded that the cross really is empty and that the present reality is a raised and triumphant Jesus. And that's the good news because the resurrection life of Jesus called regeneration has already been infused into everyone that believes. Endless eternal life has been given to us so that we now live by the power of Christ. So what is the gospel? It is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose. And with that, Paul has given us the first truth, a place where we can stand. But I can almost hear the objection. But, 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 what if it's all not true? What if Jesus simply died 2,000 years ago and that over time, the event of the resurrection was simply invented? I mean, after all, is it really possible to believe that dead men can rise from the dead? We need to again remember the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians. This book was written 21 to 25 years after the purported resurrection of Jesus. And so, the time of this writing is an important matter. So let's then examine the second piece of evidence. There were, in fact, eyewitnesses of this event. From verses 5 to 8, Paul mentions first that he appeared to Peter, or as Paul calls him by his given name, Cephas. Then he appeared to the twelve. Now again, I think we do an injustice to the text by saying, well, wait a minute. He actually appeared to both Peter and John, and then he didn't appear to the twelve. There were only eleven of them left as Judas Iscariot had committed a suicide by the time of the resurrection. But all of that is a misunderstanding of this text. Peter is considered the head of the apostolic band, and so mentioning him is mentioning their leader. And the twelve, well, that's another way of referencing the apostles. The twelve was one of their titles, even though by this time their number had been reduced to eleven. Now, first to Peter, then to the twelve, and then third, he appeared to a group of five hundred at one time. Now, remember, if that's not true, what Paul is writing would have had no effect whatsoever. A mere 21 years after the resurrection, he mentions that it is a relatively easy matter to interview hundreds of eyewitnesses who not only saw the resurrected Jesus, but also saw him at the same time. The reason he mentions this detail is because it's possible for a number of different people at different times claiming some kind of a vision of Jesus. But clearly, this is not what he's talking about. 500 people all seeing the same thing. That's not a vision. They're witnessing the real resurrected Jesus in flesh and blood, real history. That's essential. 
Understand that as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not invent clever tales when we told you about Jesus. Indeed, the very fact that Paul mentions a company of 500 that could have been interviewed in his time indicates the historic authenticity of the resurrection and what he's writing. And then if that wasn't enough, then Paul mentions Peter and then the 12, many of whom would not have believed were they not confronted by overwhelming evidence. And then a group of 500, and then he adds one more name. He mentions James. And so why mention James? The James Paul has in mind is the author of the book of James and also the half-brother of Jesus. According to John 7, verse 5, before Jesus' death, his brothers did not believe in him. That includes James. In spite of Jesus' miracles and his morally upright character and his amazing teaching, James would not and could not reconcile himself to the idea that his brother was the Son of God. That idea was beyond the realm of credibility. That is, until his own brother, after he witnessed him brutally murdered on a Roman cross, stood before him and presented himself alive. At that moment, the evidence was simply overpowering, and James, as well as his brother Jude, bent the knee before their earthly brother, and called him Lord and God. I mean, what else can possibly explain this if not the fact that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead? And so what Paul has done is that he has tied together both the gospel that he preached and the gospel that the Corinthian believers believed with real events in history that could be historically verified. What he is saying is that you have a foothold on that which you believe. Now, Paul then adds another important truth, and this He is now talking about not only his own conversion, but also his call to be an apostle of Jesus. He calls himself one untimely born, and he means by that that he became an apostle in the most unusual way. Rather than having been called by Jesus during his earthly ministry, Christ called him after the resurrection. Indeed, he even called Paul after he had ascended to heaven. Ah, but remember, I can almost hear the objection. Lots of people have visions of all manner of things. I mean, how are we to verify Paul's vision of the resurrected Jesus and his call to ministry? But indeed, Paul's call is significant. He says that he is unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. See, every once in a while, we do hear of persecutors who are overcome by their own sense of right and wrong. I mean, at some point in time, the voice of conscience forces its way into their thinking, and sometimes persecutors are overcome with remorse. But that's not true of Paul. By by his own account, according to what he wrote in Galatians, he was advancing in Judaism. He was zealous for the traditions of his forefathers. He writes in Philippians that he was proud to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was rising in Judaism beyond his peers, and in that, he had all the outward encouragement to just keep going. So both inwardly and outwardly, all the signs pointed in but one direction. What Paul is saying is that he thought that he was being righteous when he persecuted Christians. His conscience didn't bother him. Indeed, his conscience would have bothered him if he didn't persecute Christians. And so, what is to explain a man whose conscience and whose intellect told him both to persecute Christians and to rise in Judaism? What is to explain a man whose community was impressed with him so that he was everyone's favorite son? I mean, how does he go from leading hard into that course of life and then suddenly leading hard in the exact opposite direction? Paul had an answer. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what he says. 
He means that God in mercy transformed him, and now the man who wanted to destroy the church was working harder than any other, sacrificing more than any other, gladly giving up the accolades of others, and also giving up his material wealth, fully engaged in preaching the gospel and establishing the church that he once tried to destroy. Unless we think, wow, that Paul was a really good guy. By, by working so much harder than anyone else, he is quick to add, even there, not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So to those who are questioning the resurrection, Paul knows that he needs to take them to a solid place, a place where they can stand. The gospel, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the stories of radical conversions, like that of Paul, tells us that the matter of the resurrection of Jesus really is true. You can settle that matter. See, once you settle on that as a sure truth, then you are at a place to discuss our own resurrection from the dead. Indeed, you are then at a place in which you can get a handle on any other doubts that we might have. Settle a matter of the resurrection and all other things will take their proper place. So how about you? When you doubt, when you fear death, when you're at a place where you question so much, do you have a sure place to stand? And is that place the certainty of the resurrection? I do hope so. John, I think this is a message so many people need to hear and maybe hear again and again. And it's the whole issue of confidence. You know, what would you say to those people, though, that have been suffering for a long time or don't seem to be able to get past something that's happened to them? So their, their confidence in Jesus actually weakens over time. Yeah, often that confidence is related to whether or not this matter is just and, you know, how can God allow that to happen? And I would say that many times we, we can't answer the questions that we want to have answers to, but we can answer the question that Christ was in fact raised from the dead and that our future will be better than the present. So I think the confidence has to be not in having all of the individual questions answered, but the confidence has to come in having you know the gospel as front and center and that our confidence is in that. You know, I, I see so many young people today who, who walk through a very difficult road of their journey uh, with Christ and, and have so many different influences. Confidence has to be critical for them, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does because, I mean, we are going to deal with not only suffering, um, we're going to deal with all manner of other crises that will come to us in our lives, things that will be unexpected for us. And we're going to have to gain confidence. I mean, ultimately, uh, the great crisis that all of us are going to face is the crisis of our own death. And then when everything else is breaking down, we need to, again, get our eyes on the cross and what Christ accomplished for us and on the resurrection. And we need to gain our confidence in that moment. Yeah. Be of confidence in Christ. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Engaging kids in the Bible is critical from a very early stage. Familiarity with Bible characters, stories, and providing effective tools to encourage memorization. Well, this is the vision for the launch of Back to the Bible Kids. Coming this May, three unique game-style Bible engagement applications designed to expand and deepen a child's understanding and memorization of Scripture will be released on both the Apple and Google Play Store. Exciting times, but can we ask for your prayers? Our vision for Back to the Bible Canada is that we would engage Canadians at every stage and age in 
life, deepening our thirst to know the Bible. So please pray and stay tuned. And remember, all that is accomplished is in partnership with friends like you. So join us in ensuring that trustworthy Bible teaching continues to be available every day by offering your gracious support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca.